welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 96 for the final third of the final month of 2013. Today I'm bringing you an interview with Aaron Adair about the Star of Bethlehem. Aaron Adair recently received his PhD in physics from THE Ohio State University, researching physics education. He previously studied at Michigan State University, where he also worked as a planetarium show presenter and first came to learn about different ideas about the Star of Bethlehem. He has previously published on the subject of the Star of Bethlehem in Sky and Telescope and Zygon, Journal of Science and Religion. Aaron currently resides in Columbus, Ohio, probably about two hours from where I grew up, and he blogs on the topics of science, pseudoscience, history, religion, philosophy, and other things at gilgamesh42.wordpress.com, which will be linked up in the show notes. In September of this year, he published a book that's the subject of the episode today, The Star of Bethlehem, A Skeptical View. With that intro, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. It's uh, good to have you, and I haven't done this topic yet because it seems like I wasn't quite sure what what new I could add to it. So let's actually get to that part right away. Um, why did you write it, and what do you think your work on the Star of Bethlehem contributes in terms of what's already out there about the star, especially written by skeptics and even some religious scholars who tend to doubt it? Okay, well... I first came to learn about these things, as was kind of mentioned in the intro, about 10 years ago when I started working at a planetarium. And for reasons that are still a little mysterious to me, perhaps, for some reason, I just got attached and got really interested in biblical study matters and started researching that. And later in college, I even took Greek and Latin so I could try to access the sources better. So are you fluent in Greek and Latin? I wouldn't dare say that, no. Okay. (laughs) Um, I mean, I... I can go through and translate these texts because they're fairly easy, but um, if you ask me to, like, you know, uh, live translate some Homer for you, you will be in quite a lack of surprise of good quality. Okay, because I noticed that in your book you tend to use a lot of the Greek phrases and say, you know, this means this, and you pay a lot of attention to grammar. Yes. um, I mean, I did, you know, study this right, and... Fortunately, because there's just so many resources out there from uh, classical scholars and Bible scholars, it's almost easy to do it at this point, at least if you have a, some basic background in the language, which fortunately I decided to do before I got a little too deep into it and made anything foolishly mistaken. Okay. But otherwise, so I started getting interested in biblical studies, um, and then I came back, remember watching the show again, and then going home over the holidays, and they had a TV special on. And they talked about the Star of Bethlehem, and it was a different theory than the one from the show. And they had even other theories there. And then I realized, okay, this is a pretty complicated subject. There's more than one idea out there. Nobody agrees on anything. And most of the people talking about it don't really you know, have access to the languages. They're not um, fluent in biblical study matters. They're kind of you know, outside amateurs. And it makes it realize that I could at least try to go in and try to bridge the gap in these sorts of things and do more to say what's what and what's really going on with the story. And it's been kind of an interesting adventure because also it touches on two areas that, of course, um, your show has only touched on maybe a little bit, interactions of science and religion. You've talked before about creationism, Mm -hmm. and usually there it's, you know, two sides are butting heads. 
Right. With this one, it's so much more um, of a, like you know a peaceful dialogue where science is basically and effectively helping explain something from religion. So it's a very different like case study to look at. And so that was the topic of the article that I had published in Zygon about how this interaction has gone on for the last 2,000 years. Hmm. Okay, and I think we're going to get to uh, that a, a little bit later in terms of um, the interaction of science and religion in this issue. Uh, but I'd like to sort of approach this interview in, I guess, somewhat a similar manner as your book is actually laid out. Um, so, you know, to plug your book and get that out of the way, um, it is the, the Star of Bethlehem, A Skeptical View. It's available on Amazon and I'm guessing wherever uh, most books or ebooks are sold. And I'll have a link to it uh, on the show notes. But let's backtrack a bit from that. Uh, when investigating anything, um, obviously the first step is to figure out what that claim actually is and then to examine it to see if it actually happened and then finally, if it did, to try to explain it. So let's actually sort of take that first step first and uh, for maybe the the one listener listening to this show who does not know or has never heard about the Star of Bethlehem, what is it or what is it alleged to be and why is it so important? Okay, so this is a story that comes from what's traditionally the first gospel of the New Testament, in which we are reading a story about the um, birth and very young life of Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, according to the story. And as we are told that in the days of Herod the king, and this was um, Herod the Great, who reigned from about 37 to 4 BCE or thereabouts, in the his reign... It is said that wise men, or magi, came from the east, saying, We have seen this star in the east, or at its rising, translations differ, and we are now looking for the newborn king of the Jews. Where is he so we can come and worship him? This is, of course, the first time Herod's heard about it, and since he already is king, it's a little bit troublesome for him. Mm -hmm. So he uh, basically brings them in, interviews them to some degree. We're not giving too much details about that. And basically says, okay, go out and find the child. My advisors say he should be in Bethlehem, according to the prophecies from the Hebrew Bible. So go out, find him, and bring back word to me, so I may too come and worship him. And then, of course, imagine him with him stroking his evil mustache, mm -hmm. since he wants to then eradicate his uh, rival. So the wise men then go out, and lo and behold, they see the star that they had seen rising before, but now it is going before them, and then it stops in, um, stops over where the young child was. The Magi are filled with great joy, enter the house, find um, Jesus and his mother, and give gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they, you know, I guess they chat for a bit, and then the Magi are apparently told in a dream by an angel to get out of Dodge, because Herod's trying to, you know, get rid of them. So they leave by a different route, and Herod gets tricked, basically. Okay, so it's basically God's neon sign pointing, special guy sitting right here. It, it's it's really a, a pointer in the Bible, or at least that uh, particular book of the Bible, right? Yeah, as a couple of Bible scholars put it, um, basically the star acts as like um, an early GPS unit. So you spend the first part of your book discussing different source material for what the star is supposed to be, the specifics of it from which you try to nail down what you can then investigate in terms of what the astronomy is supposed to be and what the sources are in terms of how authentic they are. 
what is that source material for this? Well, unfortunately, when it comes to the story itself, we only have one independent version of the story, and that is the Gospel of Matthew. We have other stories later on that basically further embellish the story, where now the Holy Family is um, having giving birth to Jesus in a cave. When the birth is given, um, time all of a sudden stops and birds are stopped in midair. Weird clouds of light are there. So it only gets more fantastic, and we're almost certain that they're using the Gospel of Matthew as a source. So they're not even independently telling us a story. So we only really have one source. That's the Gospel of Matthew. And so the first thing we want to know is who wrote this book so we can do some analysis of how likely that they are to know what they're doing or why they're doing it. And even though it's called the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew was supposed to have been one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, it's been consensus for a long time that we really don't know who wrote the book. And it was written probably many decades after the death of Jesus, and perhaps a century, maybe even more than a century, after the birth of Jesus. So already we have something that's a bit distant from the events, and because it's also so distant, we don't know how he would have even gotten these sources. The um, mother and alleged father of Jesus would have both been died simply by age. This is also supposed to have been written after the great Jewish war between um, Jewish rebels and the Roman Empire, which, with a setup like that, you can imagine which side got you know very badly hurt. Mm-hmm. In that destruction, the church in Jerusalem was pretty much destroyed. The temple was destroyed, and this today is still, um, you know, brings tears to eyes of Jewish people because this was the house of God that's been destroyed and never replaced. And so we're after that point, where after all the witnesses could have been around, the wise men would have been dead. Even Jesus' siblings would probably be dead. Allegedly, um, James, one of the brothers of Jesus, died during the war period, so... There's no plausible eyewitnesses that the author of Matthew, whoever that was, would have had. And that makes it a bit rough to figure out what's going on. It's also hard to figure out what his sources are, because unlike other historians at the time, he just doesn't tell us. Most of the others, I mean, even the bad historians of the past would say how they know about things. Mm -hmm. So if Matthew is trying to write history... He's writing history in a way worse than the worst historians of the classical era. And that's not a good way to try to then get, you know, good, hard, factual details out of things. How do you treat these different kinds of sources and these... um, You you do mention that, uh, so for example, Luke has a little bit of material in there about maybe at least trying to nail down when Jesus was born. Because if you're trying to figure out something that's an astronomical event, you have to know when it happened. How do you treat those inconsistencies in the book, and how do you treat the lack of certainty in terms of was Matthew even trying to write a historical narrative, or was it purposely supposed to be sort of an embellished uh, bit of fiction? Right, so when it comes to trying to apply the Gospel of Luke, and again, the name of Luke is attached to it, Luke was supposed to have been one of the um, followers and like assistants to the Apostle Paul, but again, nobody really knows who wrote it, and it's, again, probably from the late 1st, early 2nd century AD, so it's, again, distant from the events, and the problem, of course, it talks about the birth of Jesus, but it talks about it differently. It includes a few things that are similar in Matthew, such as Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but it doesn't mention 
the star that allegedly brought the wise men there at all. The wise men aren't mentioned. The attempted um, killing of Jesus by Herod isn't mentioned. So it's really hard to correlate the two together. And when we try to actually apply like their chronologies, we also find out that they don't really mesh so well. For example, as mentioned in Matthew, Herod the Great is king of the time and then tries to go and kill Jesus. And Herod dies late 5, early 4 BC, somewhere in that range. And Luke talks about events happening during the census of Judea. And the only census that really makes sense about like who he's saying was the governor of Syria and what we know about the history of Judea when it was absorbed more directly into a Roman province, this would put the birth of Jesus in like 6 or 7 AD. So 10 years later. Right. So there's at least a 10-year discrepancy. And there's been many, many attempts to try to get around this. I don't really discuss them in the book just to be laser-focused on the Star of Bethlehem issue, but it mm -hmm. makes us realize, okay, here's our two earliest sources. They're both written by unknown people. They don't tell us how they get their information. They don't agree with each other. And not only do they not have similar details in common, but what details are there differ dramatically on the time scale. So it is really hard to know what's going on. Now, most Bible scholars will basically say, well, Luke says also that Jesus was born, born during the reign of Herod the king. So they figure, okay, so he's also placing it during the reign of Herod the Great, so Jesus would be born maybe anywhere between like 7 and 5 BC. Though a few others have also pointed out the problem that Herod had several sons. Mm -hmm. They all called themselves Herod because that's how things were back then. <laughs> Uh -huh. A little bit unoriginal. Now, technically, they weren't kings, but there have been some people who have argued that Luke could at least be consistent with himself if he meant not Herod the Great, but one of Herod's sons. So this throws another monkey wrench into the whole thing. Which Herod is he talking about? So when it comes to the birth of Jesus, pretty much everyone says 7 to 4 BC, best guess, and to repeat, best guess. All right, and, that, and that's sort of the time frame that you adopt throughout the rest of the book. You do spend a lot of space talking about astrology and why modern-day astrology doesn't tend to work out, and listeners can go back in the archives of this podcast and many, many other sources online to find out why astrology doesn't work, um, and certainly especially why it's hard to interpret different astrological charts. But to someone who doesn't really know much about the Star of Bethlehem or even the story of Jesus' birth, I mean, I'll raise my hand and personally say I have never actually read the Bible why do you spend so much time talking about astrology when the book is about the Star of Bethlehem? What's the connection here? Okay. The thing that people want to figure out is how was it that the Magi saw this star rising in the sky and somehow interpreted that to mean there is a newborn king in Israel? How do they get from star to that? So it's a matter of interpretation and of that time, astrology is basically the very art of interpreting the stars. And at that time, I mean, of course, you know, we deride astrology now for good reason. Mm -hmm. But back then, the astrologers and the astronomers were the same people. And astrology was practiced like a science. In many ways, it, you could imagine in some ways it was kind of like a first attempt at doing like psychology. At saying, well, you, you know, Freud said, well, your mother and father treated you this way. That's why you grew up this way. Well, now in this case, it's because Jupiter was in the seventh house, etc. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, of course, they had problems. They also were aware 
of the problems with their methods, but they were trying to treat it like scientists in a scientific way. But the key thing is trying to interpret the stars and knowing what they mean. The history of astrology goes back a long time. It goes back into like ancient Babylon. Uh, some of the oldest astrological texts I think are from like the second millennium BC or a little bit later than that. And for the most part, of course, they were using astrology to try to figure out what do the gods want them to do. Um, in the period where Jesus was supposed to be born, um, astrology <clears throat> astrology was more done um, at a personal level. People like casting horoscopes and saying, um, what sorts of life can you expect? What sort of personality traits would you have? Etc., etc. Mm -hmm. But um, no matter what, it's all a matter of looking at the stars and looking at how their um, their positions are relative to each other, especially to the planets. And in ancient astrology, it's the classical seven planets of the Sun, the Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Not necessarily in that order. Um, orders would get a little mixed up here or there, but they would use those where they are in the sky, which constellation or sign they are in at the time, and basically say, well, there's this angle between these stars, that's a good thing, angle between these two planets, that's a bad thing. And from that, many modern people have been trying to say, okay, here's how somebody in the first century would have interpreted this sign. And this is how they would have said, oh, that tells them it's the birth of a king. It's in that constellation, so it's a king of the Jews. And from there, that's how they get it. It also has the advantage of explaining if this was, you know, some new, big, bright star that everyone in the world could see, why didn't everybody in the world write about it? <laughs> if it's something you have to interpret that you have to basically get trained in and is only known then by, you know, the expert scientists of the period, it explains why it isn't, like, written in, like, every Roman historical record or something. Hmm. So it's kind of twofold. Why are they interested in that, and why are only they the ones aware of it? When, when all this is said and done, um, when you go through all of these different possible sources and possible interpretations, what kind of picture of the stars actually painted? In other words, what is the most cohesive story that you can pull out of the various descriptions to then try to match to some sort of astronomical event? Or is there even a cohesive story you are able to put together? Okay, well, I can at least try to mention the, the attempts at making that into a cohesive story. So the first thing is when the star is mentioned as going before the wise men or the magi. Mm -hmm. um, many try to interpret that as saying, this is actually referring to the, mom the movement of the planet relative to the stars in what's called retrograde motion. Um, have you talked about this before on your show? Uh, I have, but I, it was probably a many, many, many episodes ago. So why don't you very briefly explain it? Okay, so from night to night, you'll notice that the planets will move a little bit, more obviously from like week to week. And they tend to go from west to east. That's their normal motion, but every so often they tend to slow down, go backwards and move from <clears throat> east to west, slow down again and return. And that east to west motion is the retrograde, where it's like backtracking and then returns back into prograde motion. So a lot of people are saying what the Magi are seeing there is when they're talking about the star going before, they're talking about the retrograde action of the planet. Hmm. And then, like I said, because the planet then slow down and stop, when it says then the star stood, then they might refer to and say, ah, that standing still is then the, the stationary point of the planet relative to the stars in the sky. 
So that's a very popular interpretation of that, um, at least when it comes to the planets. Okay. Others will do something a little bit different. Like for those who want to argue that it was a supernova, they'll say that the going before is just the star was seen in the direction of Bethlehem. And for just a note of geography, Bethlehem is pretty much south of Jerusalem, about six miles away. Okay. So they would, um, the wise men would come out, they would see um, the star southwardly, and they say, ah, there it is. And when they say stood over, um, that could be a number of different things. Some will say that means the star was at zenith when they were in Bethlehem, so it was directly overhead. Mm-hmm. Or just that while they were walking there, that it was all, the star was always above Bethlehem, so it was standing above Bethlehem. That's the most common ways I've seen it interpreted. That, of course, is how you might try to force an interpretation onto it, but unfortunately, Matthew will have none of that. <laughs> For one thing, again, the star says it goes before them, as in the Magi, so the reference frame is what direction are the wise men walking? They're walking south, so the star needs to be traveling south, and unfortunately, all stars will, um, because of the rotation of the Earth, move from east to west in the sky. Mm-hmm. You really can't go south. The best guess you would have is maybe a meteor, just flashing that direction, but this is something that's supposed to lead them for the whole walk, apparently. And meteors are, you know, a matter of seconds, maybe right. a minute if it explodes. It's not going to go for, like, the two, three-hour walk or whatever this might be, and if they take any breaks along the way. So, first off, we don't even have anything that really fits that point. And then it says the star stops, and it has to be able to stop according to their own ability to see. If you wanted to see the stationary point of a planet... You simply couldn't, because the planet is usually moving so slow around the stationary points that it's the motion is pretty much invisible for days. Right. You wouldn't notice it on a you know on a stroll down from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and we know this not only because of what we can see, but the ancient astronomers say the same thing. So we know we're not um, that you know they weren't super powered in their eyesight or anything like that back then. Yeah, and the motions of the planets relative to the stars are are very very slow. Um, except, you know, maybe Mercury. But even then, it still takes days to really see much of a change. Exactly, yes. And then finally, the point that probably makes this the most difficult is the fact that it says it stood over the very particular place where Jesus was, and it's using a bit of um, grammar and vocabulary that basically says it's hovering right over a particular house. So this is something that's low down in the atmosphere, it's very noticeable, and you could also imagine if it wasn't the case that this was that. Um, I don't know if you've seen the excellent movie Monty Python's Life of Brian. You know, I I can't do British humor. I, try, I tried to watch it, I got about a uh, half hour into it, and then I was just like, this is just too stupid. Well, nobody's perfect. Yeah, well, now I'm sure I've lost half of my listenership, but anyway... All right, to recover, though, it has this excellent scene at the beginning where it shows the star leading them, but the um, wise men go to the wrong house and end up worshipping the wrong child but and give gifts to this, um, well, unclean woman and who's basically just kind of in it for the money. Mm-hmm. And then they step out and they see, oh, oh, we actually see where Jesus is because the stable is, like, glowing because of the star, and then they steal all the gifts and push the person over and go to the real savior. <laughs> So you can imagine, though, without that, like, you know, GPS pointer, these people come to the town of Bethlehem. How do they know which house is the, you know, newborn king supposed to be at? 
Mm-hmm. You go to just the first one, you know, with a baby in it and say, is this the king of the Jews? You got some money for him. Yes, yes, definitely here, yes. Yeah, hey, so, I mean, right just, here. <laughs> just from logistics. <laughs> just, just from logis- logistics, you would almost need that. But the text itself does say that it's basically hovering over a particular locale, not just a city, but a, a pretty much a particular house. And that's how pretty much everyone interpreted this up until about 1800 when they tried, you know, squirming around it. To, to keep this interview not going uh, to the length of an hour, I'll just say that you, you mention a lot of the different ideas of the Star of Bethlehem. So, I mean, already you've said, okay, maybe it's a meteorite, maybe it's a nova, possibly a supernova, maybe it's uh, the astrology of, of stuff with Jupiter, and maybe it's uh, with the Star of Regulus. Uh, you mention uh, Jupiter moon occultation, horoscopes, various other things. I guess a question that could come up, though, when you're trying to match a possible astronomical event with these descriptions, one could ask, are you trying to be too literal? I mean, the text mm-hmm. of Matthew does say one particular thing, but are or you know, maybe one particular thing. Uh, one could quibble about that. Are you trying to too literally match that text, do you think? Or do you think that you should be more liberal in that kind of interpretation? A fair point. Um, So, yes, if it fails the literal interpretation, then maybe something a bit more figurative. So two things that we could look at. One is, are any of the hypotheses that are thrown out, could they even stand on their own, let alone, you know, not just fitting the description, but actually can you you know, objectively say from the historical evidence, somebody will look at that and think, yes, birth of king of the Jews. One of the things I go through with all the different hypotheses is that, unfortunately, no, you couldn't do that, that either the astrologers themselves are just so full of contradiction mm-hmm. on these points that it's pretty much a crapshoot on what any horoscope would mean to anybody. And <clears throat> there's also then, I point out several historical problems uh, when it comes to these sorts of events happening. But if we just take it that if we try not to treat this literally, then in a way we're basically ultimately saying that Matthew is trying to not be a historian, in which case, all right, let's do literary analysis and see what kind of story it really is. Okay. And then, of course, we have to say, all right, does it best conform to trying to tell history, but somehow doing it in a non-literal way, which would be really weird even in antiquity. Okay. Um, can we go through one of the examples that you talk about, say, uh, the comet explanation? Because I thought that that was uh, a good, at least thorough, from what I've seen, approach that you took in terms of was there a comet that even fits this at the time period and various uh, people recording it. So I was wondering if you discuss that in a little bit more detail and also what comets even meant. We are fortunate that we actually have pretty good comet records from antiquity. We have some from the Greeks and the Romans, but our best source actually comes from the Chinese. Um, The records in particular we're looking at are from the Han Dynasty, which was fortunately reasonably stable, and we have records from that entire period um, telling us about the various comets, and they're pretty detailed. They'll say which um, constellation or Chinese constellation would be they were seen in, how long they were seen, and they even had descriptions of types of comets. So if they had long tails or if they were kind of shimmering because like the tail was straight on with the earth. Mm-hmm. So we're very fortunate that we have these records and we have a comet that fits the 
usual time period for the birth of Jesus. There was one scene in the spring of 5 BC. So we know that existed. And we also know that when comets come about, people pay attention. Mm -hmm. And in particular, the hypothesis I look at, the person also argues that there's a few points of how the Romans, or I should say the Greeks in their writing, describe comets as sort of vocabulary they used and say it kind of matches what's seen in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, that latter point I refute because the people making the arguments didn't even look at the Greek. Oh, well. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Details. But the biggest problem with any time anyone wants to say a comet was the great you know, portent is the fact that it's pretty much universally the case that comet meant, oh boy, we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. It's usually bad news. Um, of course, some of the people would try to find interesting ways to get around it. For example, at the Battle of Hastings, a comet was seen, and the invading army said, ooh, it's bad news for the guys we don't like. <laughs> History is written um, by the victors. Right. And sometimes it can be a little bit humorous. For example, um, the Roman Emperor Vespasian um, in the 70s AD, a comet was seen in the late 70s, and people thought it was a really bad omen for him. And <clears throat> now the word comet... Uh, basically it comes from the Latin word for hairy. Mm -hmm. So Vespasian was joking like, oh, no, no, this isn't about me. That's about the Persians because comets are hairy and I'm bald. <laughs> Unfortunately, he died later that year. Okay. <laughs> so he also, I think, died of a bout of irony. Yeah. But nonetheless, everyone basically, just about everyone who sees a comet, it's usually bad news for someone. No, we have no evidence anywhere of somebody saying comets mean the birth of anyone Jewish or otherwise. Or king or messiah. or you know, So it, it seems like it would be a huge leap that the comet actually does fit. There was a comet, but the interpretation of it, and this actually was uh, in a couple of other possible star explanations that you gave. It's like, well, okay, this actually might have happened, but the typical interpretation of it is that this is a bad thing and not a good thing. Yeah, the exceptions to that are extremely rare, and from what I can tell, politically motivated after the fact, something that couldn't explain what the Magi would be doing because they would have no political incentive to try to get a Jewish king out of a comet interpretation. Mm -hmm. So it's it's pretty much a no-go. Okay, so in perhaps a contrived transition, comets are usually interpreted as bad news unless you're Richard Hoagland, which I've discussed a lot on this podcast. Richard Hoagland tends to think that any weird comet, which is anything that obeys his interesting numerology, is actually an alien spacecraft. Could that actually be an interpretation of the Star of Bethlehem? Is that it was actually a UFO? This has actually been independently proposed by several different people back in the 1960s, including one person who actually has a, um, a doctoral degree in theology. So okay. um, this has been, you know, this is actually seriously said. It's also been twice now on the History Channel's um, Ancient Aliens. Which you call a scholastic embarrassment in your book. That's what it is on a good day. <laughs> so, yeah, this has been seriously proposed. And to be fair... Um, given what we're supposed to believe about alien spacecraft, they can move around in any way they want. So it could, if it wanted to, look like a star. It could move around as described. It can hover over a particular place. It could even put up a big sign and say, eat at Joe's right here, mm -hmm. whatever it is to get the Magi to travel. So 
I mean, we have, of course, the problem of are alien explanations that much more probable than miraculous ones, but at least it can theoretically fit the description. But at that point, it seems like you're really in the realm of special pleading. It's like, okay, this is, yeah, yeah, aliens, nothing else fits, so it was aliens. Which actually gives another good transition. What about the miraculous explanations? I mean, I talked with someone uh, before I did this interview, and he said, you know, he grew up uh, going to Catholic school, and at that point, like, when he, what he was taught was, you know, this was a miracle that, you know, God basically pointed and said, let there be star, and there was the star of Bethlehem. So what do you say to people who would say, well, you know, who cares if you can't explain it with astronomy? It was a miracle, and I don't need no stinking science to say that this did or did not happen. So anytime we have a miracle claim, of course, we have to, you know, we want to be consistent. There's lots of miracle claims out there, and it would take a level of credulity I don't think anyone has to believe even a majority of them. So, I mean, for the most part, Catholics don't believe in Hindu miracles or Islamic miracles, um, Native American miracles, Greek miracles, or other pagan ones. So to say then that your particular miracle is the real deal is already in itself a sort of special pleading, but even if we leave that aside, let's just say we just don't even have this background knowledge, can we even see how historically plausible the story is? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I do is, for example, okay, let's look at the viewpoint of the wise men, the magi. These guys are supposed to be priests of the Zoroastrian faith, which is a religion that's actually um, older than Judaism. They have this sort of dualistic god system, though they only worship one, so it was a sort of monotheism. And <clears throat> they even have their own concept of something similar to a messiah or savior. So one has to wonder, why do they give two shakes of a stick about a Jewish king or Jewish savior? They got their own, and he's not going to be growing up in Palestine. So the first thing is, why would they even care? So to even get there, it's almost going to take a miracle themselves to switch out and stop being priests in this ancient religion. Next thing is, you'd have to wonder, okay, well, if they were so enamored with um, this star and making this huge trip, the Magi would then have some level of respect to future Christians and Jews in the same sort of way in Islam. While Jesus isn't considered the Son of God or God himself, mm -hmm. he's still highly revered. Unfortunately, for what we see from inscriptions left by the Magi, they persecuted Jews and Christians. They didn't have any special reference for him or their leader. So that's really weird if um, a few of them came over and literally worshipped um, the Jewish king. And we also are a bit confused because the historical record of what we actually know is these guys weren't even interested in astrology in the same way others were. Um, and moving stars to them were a sign of bad news. They All of the moving stars were considered to be evil until a later point when they basically more or less accepted astrology. Kind of in the same way like how the Catholic Church, when they were reintroduced to astrological traditions in like the high Middle Ages, mm -hmm. at first they were very much against it. It was too deterministic. It was ruining free will. And slowly they kind of, you know, took a mediated respect for it. 
the same sort of things happened to the Magi, but only like in the 3rd, 4th, 5th century AD. So they didn't even have this astrological tradition. So why do they care about stars looking for messiahs of a religion they don't care about? And then coming back home and hating them every way, anyways. Okay. And then lastly, the simple fact is, if this event happened, these would be representatives of effectively the Persian government coming into a Romanly controlled territory and saying, who's the new boss in town? <laughs> and expecting Caesar Augustus to just sit on his hands and do nothing? <laughs> no, we know better from history that this would have basically led to hostile words being exchanged, if not soldier fire, you know, soldiers firing bolts at each other. Yeah, I think the example you gave in the book was this is sort of like if during the Cold War, Russia had basically gone to Puerto Rico and said, all right, we're installing a new governor and he's going to be the, the king or, or you know, the governor or whatever. And mm. uh, the United States would not have been like, oh, oh, darn it would have been, okay, this means war kind of situation. Yeah, it's like, um, yeah, Russia effectively, you know, takes control of Puerto Rico, and CNN doesn't even cover it. Not oh, yeah, likely. <laughs> <laughs> and we have ancient examples for that. I mentioned the region of Armenia, which had kind of a similar relationship with Rome and its um, position between the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire. And it also came to blows from time to time about who controlled that region. So we have historical reason to know that Russia, um, Rome wasn't just going to let its territories be governed by somebody else. So we have lots of historical reasons for doubting the story, even if we accept the miracle, even if God exists and does miracles. It's not necessarily the case he does every single miracle he's alleged to have done. And in this case, we have good historical reasons to doubt. With that in mind, um, sort of uh, where I was going with the question is that you also talk about how it's not necessarily whether you're making the claim that, okay, this has to be an astronomical event or it didn't happen, or maybe it was a miracle, but it's that prominent Christian theologians, and I think this is something that you mentioned towards the beginning of this interview, maybe 40 minutes ago, is that it's an intersection today and you know, the past few hundred or even thousand years of science and religion where religion is asking science effectively to back it up and it's not just that it's not just the purview of skeptics looking or atheists or agnostics or non-christians trying to see okay well is the star of bethlehem doesn't match something astronomical but it's actually prominent christians trying to say well yes this was an astronomical event science has proven it and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that or did i actually just say everything that you had to say on the topic well i can talk first a bit like i say up until about 1800 everyone agreed the story as described was miraculous and for a big portion of that was basically said okay it's a miracle and science has nothing to say about it. Astrology can't say anything about it. And that was that. That was the opinion of St. Augustus and <clears throat> many other people of the Catholic tradition. Okay, so this wasn't even an it's, issue then. It was a miracle. Yeah. That's it. Okay. God said it. That settles it. <laughs> okay. And Kepler, in some ways, Johannes Kepler, in some ways was kind of moving beyond that. He still thought the star was a miracle, but he could then at least try to use astrology to explain what would have gotten the Magi interested. So 
some level of the two meshing, but still not explaining the star itself. Just why they would have said, ooh, that's what that means. <clears throat> Only come to the 19th century and things start changing because now people are actually starting to doubt these miracle stories. So there was an entire movement of mostly Protestant scholars trying to say, okay, miracles don't happen. We live in an in a universe run by the laws of Isaac Newton. But we got this book that uh, is a little bit dodgy on that. So what's really going on here is these were natural events. We just kind of misunderstood, or the ancients misunderstood them. So trying to explain everything in the book in completely naturalistic terms. So Jesus walking on water, oh, he was just on the beach shore. It was a dark and stormy night. They didn't notice. So mistakes like that. Okay. And now imagine going through that for the whole Bible, including the Exodus story, the resurrection of Jesus, everything. Now, this didn't last very long because it's basically not only insulting the authors of the books who wrote these things, that they had no idea what they were talking about, but also it kind of missed the point of the stories. And it's become the consensus amongst um, professional Bible scholars is that, these guys, at least the gospel authors, aren't trying to say, you know, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. They're trying to tell the story, the theologically important story about Jesus, and we have to interpret that. And this doesn't mean there's nothing historical in the story, but it's really hard to find. Unfortunately, most scientists haven't been aware of that dialogue, so they've been kind of out of the loop. Mm-hmm. They also usually can't read the language, so they're even further kind of removed from the historical and linguistic context of the story. And lastly, then, you have people that want this to be true because what it ultimately does is say, yes, here is something that we can prove, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt with the best science we have, that something from the Bible is true and is important to the salvation message of it. So... Um, in particular, there's this documentary that's been around for five, six years now. It's produced by a student of a very famous apologist. It is produced also, it's from the same producer who did The Passion of the Christ. Okay. And on a recent interview he did for the, um, I think it's the Christian Broadcasting Network, the one run by um, Pat Robertson, he was saying that his documentary is the best-selling documentary full stop hmm. DVD documentary um, at least it was like number one on Amazon at one point and this is you know trying to say here's what science proves about the star of Bethlehem and why it makes you love Jesus so much more now yeah, of course so I mean it is it's very much used by at least some people as a tool of evan evangelizing and it's a mixed bag of some people who use it I was very surprised like for example creationists like it answers in Genesis mm-hmm. For them, it's a miracle. But I did discover that Henry Morris, one of the founders of creation science, thought he could explain the star of Bethlehem with science. So that was a bit interesting to find a, a young Earth creationist going that route. Hmm. But for the most part, though, I think a lot of the scientists that I discuss in the literature who've published in peer-reviewed books and articles, for them, it's mostly an interest for them. It might have theological importance for them. But I don't see them necessarily trying to, you know, convert people in the same way um, other pastors are. 
that I think uh, is a good coverage of your book and I think this topic in general. I didn't have any more questions to ask, but was there anything else that you wanted to talk about that you think uh, we left out? Well, obviously we didn't talk about all the details of all the various theories. Right. So I'll just say there's some you know other interesting bits of history, nature of astrology, and just some really interesting you know aspects about how you know history and literature was done back then that will be good to understand why the story was written the way it was. And I should also mention this isn't something I'm completely done with. I'm planning on writing more on the subject in a more um, scholastic outlet, and there's apparently going to be a conference on this at the University of Groningen next year that I'm invited to. So it's going to be still talked about in academia. You're going to see this in books for a long time. This topic isn't dying soon, so there's still lots to be discussed, even though I'll ultimately argue I'm right, you're wrong, na 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 boo boo Yeah, well, the reason that I didn't want to go into everything was because, you know, you do have a book out, and so I, I figured that if people really want the details, then they can go and read the book. Um, so... With that in mind, I guess uh, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, this will go out on December 21st, so just in time for Christmas. Um, and I will say thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure. Thanks again to Aaron Adair for coming on to discuss his new book, The Star of Bethlehem, A Skeptical View, with us on the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. That wraps up this topic for the 96th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment pretty much anywhere. Uh, the page for the episode on the website, the comment on the, or a comment on the blog post for the episode, or a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. You can also tweet me directly at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback and don't edit this end stuff. If you have a suggestion for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review, rate the podcast wherever you happen to see it online, and also have an account. I've gotten notes from some people saying, I don't use iTunes. Well, then don't rate it on iTunes. Uh, rate it somewhere else. Anyway, uh, rate it, send feedback, send reviews, tell random people, and uh, that's it for this year. So long. <laughs>